welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. You know, whenever I hear that text or I read that text, a uh, song comes to mind for me, and it goes a little like this. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. Big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. You guys know that song? The first service had no idea what was happening. Uh, But I will have you know that in 2003, that was number one on Christian radio. Uh, I don't know how, really, but that happened. Um, And it lends itself perfectly to this sermon introduction because today we're talking about uh, the Father's house, which is heaven. And so surely we can assume that there will be lots and lots of rooms, right? And there will be a table with lots and lots of food. And if the mood strikes us in heaven, I'm sure we could play football, but I think it might be two-hand touch in heaven. Um, There was someone very upset in the first service about that notion. I said, maybe you could tackle, but it's all love, right? Like it's a a full-blown, full contact, I love you, but I'm gonna get you right now kind of football. But a lot of you are probably like my wife who had never heard that song, so that's okay. It was lost on you a little bit, and we'll get through this. That was just to help you uh, get loosened up for the sermon. So let's grab our Bibles, and we're going to turn to John 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's, it, the, the passage is on your bulletin as well. As, as you get that out, let me pray for us. Lord, would you speak to us like only you can speak? We ask now that you would tune our ears so that we might hear your voice ever so clearly. We ask that you would open up our hearts to you so that we can experience the fullness that you have for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Be glorified and magnified in this place, Jesus. Amen. So today is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Passion Week. It's the time that the global church focuses on these final days of Jesus's ministry and mission. And the Gospels spend a considerable amount of time on these seven to eight days. In fact, John's Gospel spends a third of his writing on these final days of Jesus's life. Uh, This morning's text is right in the middle of all the events of Holy Week. So Jesus has already done the triumphal entry. Um, He's already washed the disciples' feet as the the most extreme, amazing example of servant leadership that's ever been done. And he's also given the disciples this final commandment, this new commandment, they call it, to love one another. And so we're actually going to pick up right before this in John 13, 36 to help us give context for this morning's passage. This is what it says at the end of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
So let's stop here for a moment and consider Peter's question as well as Jesus' response. Peter wants to know where Jesus is going. And when we read these verses, we often consider Jesus' answer to mean that he is going to the cross alone. We basically read it as a foreshadowing for the crucifixion. And that is most definitely true. So therefore, Peter is in fact unable to follow Jesus because the atoning sacrifice is for Jesus to complete alone. But then Jesus does something interesting. He says, Peter, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Now, many people take this to mean that Jesus is prophesying about the martyrdom that Peter will experience. But I am not so convinced that this is what Christ is getting at here, especially when we read it in the context of John 14, one through seven. Let's look at those verses now. This is the text we'll be spending most of our time in this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Remember, right before this, Peter has asked Jesus where he is going. Jesus responds, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. And then Jesus begins telling them about the father's house and how he is going to prepare rooms for them. Do you see this? This is the answer to Peter's question. Jesus is telling his closest friends that he's going home. This struck me so hard this week because I've always read these verses through the lens of the crucifixion. But Jesus, the son, is going home to be with his father. The cross is the necessary pathway by which Jesus will get to his ultimate destination, but he is looking forward to being home, to returning home. And he already has plans for when he gets there too. It's almost too amazing for us to consider, but Jesus is preparing a place for them. And he's preparing a place for us too. When Lolly and I lived in Florida, we were early adopters of Airbnb. Now people thought we were crazy, but we were newlyweds, we didn't have kids yet, and what we would do is we would rent out one of our guest bedrooms for extra income. Um, our house was two blocks from the ocean and two blocks from the river. Our 15-year mortgage was half the price of our rent here, uh, but forget about that. Um, we had this sweet little setup, and uh, we prided ourselves on these great reviews that we would get from our guests. That's how we kind of kept the momentum of our little uh, side gig going. And when we would get someone to book our Airbnb room, 
the first thing we would do was go before they got there and prepare the room for them. So this meant cleaning all the sheets, meant mopping, dusting, you know, spraying some air freshener or lighting some incense or what have you, um, putting out fresh towels. And then we would also create this like welcome home basket with uh, food, wine, uh, and we'd give directions for um, our favorite restaurants, favorite activities in the area, things like that. We wanted to make sure that the people felt cared for and comfortable when they arrived at our home. It was our way of being hospitable. Now, imagine for a moment that Jesus himself is eagerly awaiting your arrival, that he is getting your room ready for your forever home with him. And the sweetest part of the deal is not that he's putting together some cool welcome home basket, The best part is that he will be there waiting to receive us. Actually, Jesus says he will come and get us and bring us there. If you look at verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is the promise that he offers everyone. But the harsh reality is that not everyone will receive this offer. Jesus tells his friends that they know the way to where he is going. Basically, he's trying to explain to them that they know how to get to heaven. But as per usual, Thomas says Thomas things, and he is not sure he is picking up what Jesus is putting down. He says, wait a second. Uh, we still don't know where you're going, so how could we possibly know the way? So Jesus has to try explaining it again. He's going to the Father, and Jesus himself is the way to the dwelling place of God. His response to Thomas in verse 6 is often quoted, but so seldomly taken to heart by believers. Verse 6 says, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reality of heaven is this. Nobody is getting in unless they come in with Jesus. Have you ever been friends with someone who has connections? I don't normally have those type of friends. But on one occasion, I I have this story. So my family, um, generations back, bought a little house in Southampton, New York. Lalio wants to make it clear to you all that it's like we're 175th owners. This is not like a million-dollar listing type setup. It is a 1,000-square-foot cottage on a swamp, okay? (laughs) But we love it, okay? I've spent... Every, every summer I spend a week there ever since I was a kid, and now I get to bring my boys, which is awesome that we get to do that. Um, one summer I brought some friends of mine about 10 years ago, and we had a family friend who was in PR in Manhattan. And she found out about this bougie restaurant was opening up in East Hampton. I think actually P. Diddy was connected to it. Again, the 930 service had no idea who P. Diddy was. Um, I think P. Diddy was connected to it. And so all she did was she... she called up the restaurant and put our names on the list. And we got to show up to this grand opening and eat and drink for hours and not pay a single thing. And it was super awesome. But this story doesn't do justice to all what Jesus does for us. 
but it shines the light on the fact that as Christians, we know that our own good works and our own merits are not going to get us on the list. We need someone perfect to vouch for us. Whereas my friend just made a simple phone call, what Jesus does is he comes for us, that he paid the ultimate price on our behalf. And then what verse three says is, he's gonna come get us and walk us into the party himself. I'll say it again, there is no getting in without him. And the alternative to this, which we haven't touched too much on this series, is eternal suffering. The way, the truth, and the life speaks to these two options. When a person dies, they either are with Jesus in heaven or they are without him in hell for all of eternity. What a beautiful Palm Sunday morning, you know? We're gonna, we're gonna go the fire brimstone route this morning. You, you probably were not expecting that. But here is the deal. The more we understand and grasp the reality of hell, the sweeter it makes the reality of heaven to us. And we need to talk about it because Jesus talks about it, and pretty often. So I just want to tell you about this Pew Research study from 2014. I haven't found anything really uh, more up to date. So 2014, only 58% of Americans believe in the existence of a literal hell. Now that's not surprising to me. What was surprising was that those who identified as evangelical Protestants, only 82% believed in hell. Now I understand that the word evangelical has come to mean a lot of different things recently. But when we say evangelical, we mean something that is um, not connected to the political sphere. We at CPC are evangelical and Protestant, but in the true sense of those words, the original meanings of those words. So if the statistics are still accurate today, that means that about 20% of you do not believe in hell. And if you're a guest of this church and you haven't submitted your life to Jesus yet, then it's probably a 50-50 chance that you, you don't believe in hell. But to fully celebrate what Jesus is saying in the opening verses of John 14, we have to come to grips with the alternative. There is a literal and eternal hell that awaits all people who do not call on Christ as their savior. The fact that Jesus did what he did for us that he died for us while we were still sinners and enemies of God, that makes the reality of heaven even more astounding. Our path was toward destruction, but Jesus intervened and promised us eternity with our creator. Now I said, I don't think we, we take verse six to heart. Let me explain. I might've shared this with you in a previous sermon. I know I've shared it with, with our students a lot. How many of you are familiar with Penn and Teller? Yeah, well, not that many of you. Uh, Penn and Teller are mu uh, musicians, magicians, or I think they like to be called illusionists if anyone watches Arrested Development. It's an illusionist. Um, so they uh, have this gig and Penn is the bigger guy 
who does all the talking, if you know any of these, these guys. Well, Penn is an ardent atheist, and he released this video about 10 years ago. It's super low quality. That's why I'm not showing it to you. But the quality of the message is extremely amazing. And I want us to really hear what he has to say. Now, it's extra amazing that this is coming from a person who does not believe in God or an afterlife. In the video, Penn is talking about proselytizing. And proselytizing is another word for evangelizing or basically trying to convert someone to your faith or your belief system. Now, usually when I hear an atheist talk about proselytizing, I am ready to hear some like choice words and some, some uh, big feelings come out of them. And Penn does have some choice words, but not in the way you might think. Listen to what he has to say. I have always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and if you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Let me ask those two questions to you again. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he is painfully aware that humans are lost that they've bought into lies and that they are heading towards a miserable death. So when he says that he is the way, Jesus is now telling us that there is in fact another way, another option. His promise is that you, if you choose Christ's way, he will save you from that other option, that other path from eternal punishment. And he'll offer you this gift of eternal salvation and he's also promising, and he says it multiple times throughout this uh, passage, he's promising that when you are with Jesus, you are with God. They are one and the same, that you get to have an unhindered, unencumbered relationship with God, your creator. And these promises are all over this morning's passage. Jesus is, is pr promising us that he is going to prepare a room for us and as he clearly says, if you know him, then you intimately know God. This is the best news. I mean, it changes everything. So then why does this central verse, verse six, um, seem so misused and underused in Christianity? So let me explain this. It's misused as a bludgeon. Verse six has become a rallying cry of the religious zealots. Over and over, I have seen it weaponized against those who do not believe. There's an arrogance about it. Christians say, well, I know the way, the truth, and the life. You don't. So, of course, you don't understand these things that I'm saying. Basically, what, what we're either directly saying or we're implying is that I'm going to heaven, 
you're going to hell, right? Now, guys, that could be the truth. It is the truth. But that is not the attitude or approach that we should take, right? Now, on the other hand, it is why this supremely important verse is just so often underused by Christians. I've seen Christians back down from these words of Jesus. They find it incredibly hard to publicly profess that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. They've been culturally conditioned to believe that it is too extreme and too short-sighted to say that no one comes to God except through Christ. So then how should we respond? Church, what if we look at it from a different perspective? Jesus, out of his own free grace, love, and mercy, has given us, his followers, the keys to the kingdom. It's not because of anything that you and I have done, but instead is a free gift of God. Therefore, we should certainly not respond with arrogance. That is so pharisaical and goes against everything that the gospel teaches. How could, you, how could we be arrogant about something that was freely given to us as if we earned it in some way? We didn't earn it. In the same way, you should certainly not be ashamed of it. You should certainly not be apathetic about it. We have, we've been given the greatest gift of all. We should be excited about it. Do you realize that we have been granted the answer to one of humankind's biggest questions throughout the existence of humankind. That question being, what happens when you die? John 14 tells us what happens when we die. Generations of people have been trying to answer that question. Now, do you know what happens to you when you die? I'll take some nods. Are you sure of it? Praise God. Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. Now, I want you to look at the right leg of your chair and pull up that piece of tape. There's a green tape on all of your right chair, like right legs of the chair, okay? You at home, I did not have time to mail you one, so I'm sorry about that. So everyone just received a key, or you should have received a key. Now, this key is just a free gift to you. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You just showed up. It's given to you because you are loved and chosen. You'll notice that each key is unique, but the promise of Christ is that each will surely gain you entrance into heaven. Now, they're unique keys because Christ is preparing a room that you individually need to unlock by your key. Christ is preparing that room for you. So now you have that promise right now in the grip of your hand. And the assurance is this, Satan can never take that away. Christ is faithful to the end. So how will you live today knowing that you have the possession of this key? I'm reminded of a trio of parables from Matthew's gospel. Listen to these words from Matthew 13, 44 through 50. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are the words of Jesus. In the first two of these short parables, the kingdom of heaven is highlighted as something with just exceeding value. You'll notice that the first man stumbled upon it. The second man went searching for it. But no matter how or when they discovered it, it became their entire life. They gave everything away in order to pursue it, to obtain it fully. But this makes way for a third parable that makes it painfully clear that in the end, if a person does not possess the keys to the kingdom, then they will be weeded out and suffer the consequences. This key is, it, to the kingdom is the most important thing in your life. If you do not possess it, then you will be doomed to eternity in the fiery furnace. Praise Jesus for not giving us what we deserve. We deserve that punishment because of our sin. It is his gift of grace that shows us another way, the pathway to heaven. But what are you gonna do with this key that you have in the meantime? You gonna bury it in your backyard? You gonna put it in one of those fancy lock boxes at a bank? Or are you gonna carry it around with you and tell people about it? This is an often used illustration, but even this just pales in comparison to what Jesus does for us. Imagine somehow you stumbled upon the cure for cancer, all types of cancer. What are you gonna do with that information? You will tell anybody and everybody about that who will listen. Church, you have stumbled upon by the Holy Spirit, the cure for death. Who are you gonna tell about it? Eleanor Roosevelt once said, with freedom comes responsibility. So in the same vein, here is my exhortation to you. Before Easter, I want each of you to tell somebody the story of your key. This doesn't have to be crazy elaborate. You don't have to have all of the answers. It doesn't have to be eloquent. What it has to be is authentic to who you are and your experience with Jesus. The Bible calls believers witnesses. So our job is to witness to people about Jesus, what he has done in our, our lives. So when you're talking to someone about this key, this gift that's been given to you, you can go through this series of questions in your head that will help you. The first one being, when did you receive this gift? If you remember. What's changed in your life since you received it? And then simply, 
Why are you excited about Jesus? Tell somebody. It is the best and most important news. You have the key that unlocks the door to heaven. I want to end this morning by making this offer. If any of you here or anyone online is not confident in your eternal destiny, I want to give you a moment now to even just gain that gift of eternal assurance. Now, all you have to do is pray and confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He has paid it all for you. And in response to his grace, he asks of us to repent from our sins, to ask him for forgiveness, to submit your life to him as the loving and compassionate God, and you will be granted the keys to the kingdom. And it changes everything. It's true that what we have heard from John's gospel this morning is an exclusive truth claim. Jesus is the only way to God. But as Tim Keller puts it, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive exclusive truth in the world. It's available to anyone who will believe. Do you see how revolutionary that is? That changes everything. We're not being exclusive because we'll tell anyone about it. We'll pray for anyone. We want as many people to be our neighbors as possible in heaven. This isn't short-sighted. This isn't, we have found the cure, praise God. Let's be excited about it. Let's not be ashamed about it. Church, right now, Jesus, Jesus himself is preparing a room for you in heaven. You should be able to rest in that reality that having that assurance of your future dwelling place and also what that does for us, that helps us to persevere in the here and now in this life, knowing what's awaiting us. But there is a broken and hurting world out there. There are people who do not know this truth that need to hear the gift of salvation. I am begging you, please do not take your key and hide it away. Share it with somebody. Tell somebody. They need to know and pray for them. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that you sent your son Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that even at this moment, Christ is preparing a room for us so that we might spend eternity with you. God, help us to be excited and humbled by the gift we have received. Give us the boldness to share with others the only cure for death. In this holy week, we ask that you might draw near to us. Let us be reminded, especially on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that your work on the cross and your conquering of the grave are the key for our entrance into heaven with you forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. 
Have a blessed rest of your week.